Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 11, 32 to 38. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might have rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we do thank you for your word. We really are grateful. Grateful that it's true. And we're grateful, Father, for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, who illuminates this text, who opens it up for us that we might see and believe And Lord, we come from many different places today. Hearts that are heavy, hearts filled with joy, concerns that are deep. And we do pray as we sing, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe on every troubled heart. Bring us encouragement, and not just in this place, but to all of our brothers and sisters all around the world, especially those, Lord, who are in the midst of profound persecution. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to preach from this passage and a few of the characters over the next two weeks. So today, in some ways, is just introduction to a theme called the Holy Spirit in the Hall of Faith. And I'll tell you why I'm going in that direction in a moment. The first thing I want to say is this, that followers of Christ Jesus have suffered persecution throughout history, property stolen, beatings, imprisonment, and martyrdom. Those have been the fate of countless Christians, but it's not our story. It's not the story of our seminaries. I don't know personally anybody that I went to seminary with that has been martyred. Yet around the world, each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. I have seen that. 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians every month. But it's not our story. None of you were concerned about getting into a car or on public transportation and coming to this church today. Not from the government at least, 
You might not want a family member to know that you're pursuing Christianity. You might not want a coworker to know. That might be a level of persecution that you're facing. But there was none in here, no one, who had to give serious consideration to what it might really cost you physically to come to this place of worship. And aren't we thankful for that? We really are. But there is a growing unrest in our midst, not just in this church, but in all evangelical churches, churches that proclaim Christ, that that might change. There's a great sense that it will. It might not be while I'm still in this pulpit. I may be with Jesus. But certainly we have a sense that the four little ones baptized just a little bit ago and the ones baptized in the last hour are going to be living in a world, in a country, that is radically different than the one we have grown up in. And what is it going to mean for them? What kind of persecution will they face? College students starting this, maybe many tomorrow, they'll be in classes with professors who mock them. There'll be classmates that mock them. And some, for the first time, will be very quiet about what they believe. Some will even be so quiet that they begin to question what they believe. Others will grow stronger as a result, which often is the case as people experience persecution. But it's very real. This letter, Hebrews, this sermon, is so deeply encouraging for Christians. And the reason is because of why it was written and to whom it was written. Hebrews is a sermon prepared in response to a crisis of faith. Hebrews is a sermon prepared in response to a crisis of faith. A pastor, a preacher, a friend of this small house church wrote this letter, wrote this sermon, that it could be read to a people who were tempted to flee, to run from what they believed. And it's easy to see why, if we'll pause long enough to look. I've been to China a number of times, and the last time I went, I was invited to a house church. Things are changing there. The magnitude of how many believers, it's amazing. China, it won't be long before they have more Christians in that nation than there are in our nation. It will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Think about how fast that's changed. It's amazing. But when I walked into this little bitty apartment, I, I'll never forget what I saw. I didn't hear anything. When the door opened, I stepped in. And as far as I could see from the front of the room to the back and from the right to the left, it was people packed in, very quietly, worshiping the Lord and praying. It was very, very moving. There are frequent times when they gather in an apartment like that and the one leading them doesn't show up. And he doesn't show up because he's in another much smaller place, a cell locked away for an indefinite period of time. And those who are leading those churches and preaching the gospel faithfully, when they, they're sent to places like that, you know what they call it? Not prison seminary because it's a time when they have nothing to do 
but to think and to pray and to meditate upon the word of God. That's their reality. There may be a day when someone standing in this pulpit says something that the government doesn't like. Jail, perhaps. Financial penalties, perhaps. Civil disobedience, perhaps. We don't know. But we do know this. That whatever we face now or in the future, we are going to have everything we need in Christ and in his spirit. As you look at the climate of our country, as you grow concerned about the political process, as you scratch your head wondering what will things look like in the near future, I understand your fears. I have a 20-year-old who's a sophomore in college and a six-year-old who just started first grade last Wednesday. What's it going to look like? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Everything I am going to need to face whatever it is I'm going to face, I have in Christ Jesus and in the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, you have the very same thing I have. We have everything we need to face whatever it is we're going to face. And that essentially is what this preacher is saying time and time again to this small house church. I want to explain some of the persecution that they were around. It's the summer of 64, not 1964, 64 AD. The great fire of Rome has broke out. You've seen images lately of great fires. Nero, the emperor, is away. The fire burns for six days. It starts somewhat small, but the winds shift and it begins to consume this city. Of the 14 districts of the city, 14, only four escape. And three were leveled to the ground. Nero comes from where he was. And he begins to respond in a benevolent way. He even opens up his grounds and his gardens to let people who no longer have a place to stay or who are in threat of the fire consuming their district to stay on his property, to stay in his gardens. He reduces the cost of grain and things that people need to sustain life. He is seeking to appear benevolent and caring, but he is an evil emperor. The people don't buy it, and they grow in their bitterness. And their bitterness is centered on the fact that they believe Nero started the fires. They believe that he commanded those fires to be started. And as their bitterness grows, even as the fires are extinguished, they are full of hatred from an evil empire. 
So in order to save face, Nero begins to think of a plot that will take the attention off of him being the one who started the fires. And so guess who he blames? The Christians. Small sects of these little Christian groups who in many ways were already mocked by the pagan society, but were tolerated. But now suddenly the word is being spread from the top down that these Christians, these ones who have placed faith in Jesus, they're the ones who started the fire in this city. And people believed it. And those under Nero executed what they were told to execute. And that was people who professed faith in Jesus. And suddenly, people belonging to those small house churches, when they were identified, they were taken away. Some beaten, some put in prison, but many were slaughtered, even at the mouths of lions. So imagine that reality as you're thinking again whether or not to gather your little ones and walk to this quiet, small house church. No wonder, no wonder Some were saying, is it worth it? Is God real? Does he have the power to protect us? If he does, does he care? And so then, this pastor, this friend, this preacher who loved this small house church says, you need the hope of Christ. And he gives them this wonderful letter that really begins with the supremacy of Christ. And says essentially that God has spoken in the past this way, but now he has spoken this way. And it centers their eyes on Jesus. Don't give up meeting. I know you're tempted to. It's a frightening time. Who knows what will happen? And by the way, if you listen to the text that was read, it doesn't necessarily end with a happy ribbon. There's hard things that happen to those who believe in Jesus. It's always been that way. But everything, Christian, everything we need to face whatever it is we're going to face, we have in the powerful presence of Christ and the powerful reality that he's reigning as as our king and in the helper, capital H, who is the Holy Spirit. The reason I am led to speak or preach about the Holy Spirit is because whoever this preacher was, he has taken us through this amazing journey with all these saints. It's been rich. What this preacher has done is he started at Genesis and then he gets to Judges 6. And you know what he does? He simply says, I don't have enough time to continue telling you about these saints. So he begins our text with a question, and what more shall I say? The New Living Translation, I like how they translate it. It says, do I need to say any more? Do you get the point? He has gone through this amazing survey of these men, this woman Rahab. And he has said, look how faithful God has been. 
And then he says, I do not have enough time. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. I don't have enough time. And so looking at these final six, I went to Judges and to 1st and 2nd Samuel and just began to read over and over again their stories. And one thing I saw among many that might be surprising to you is the profound mention of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. That's what we're going to talk about next week. The Holy Spirit in the Hall of Faith. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read Judges 6 this week. I want you to look at the life of Gideon. And I want you to look at the persecution that the people were under as a result of their own sin. And I want you to listen for and look for the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Because the Spirit was present. Here's why. Jesus, in John 16, said this to his disciples. I'm paraphrasing, but look it up. It is better for you that I leave. How could it be better? You ever thought about that? Imagine Jesus, you're a close friend. You've walked with him for three years. And he now talks about dying on the cross, being crucified. And he says, it is better for you that I leave. How could it be better for them that he would leave? Think about it. The only perfect friend that's ever lived was Jesus. And he's about to leave them. How could that be better? No other friend is going to walk on water. No other friend is going to say to a dead man, come out of the tomb. No other friend is going to say to a storm, be still and it'll be still. No other friend is going to never have a wrong thought or a wrong word. How could it be better? It could only be better if Jesus knew it would be better and he knew it would be better because if he leaves, someone else is coming. And who is it? The one he would ask the Father for and the Father would send, and it's the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I'm going to close with today, just to whet your appetite for next week. If you are a Christian, you've professed faith in Jesus, you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit has been active in your life already. And actually, he is living inside you. The same spirit in Genesis 1 who hovered over the waters, the same spirit who was part of creation, the same spirit that stirred the hearts of all these saints, the same spirit you'll read about in Judges 6, it says, clothe Gideon with power. The same spirit that manifests himself in profound ways at Pentecost. The same spirit that carried along every one who wrote any portion of scripture is living inside you, Christian, and inside me. That is a miracle of miracles. And it's true. 
And because the Holy Spirit is living in us, we have everything we need to face whatever it is we're going to face. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we can be deeply encouraged because this is our story. The same story that these saints had, it's our story too. That you are a God who redeems his people. That you are leading us, that you are with us, and you will never forsake us. Jesus, would you make us more and more aware of your glory and Holy Spirit, would you teach us new truth about your presence and power in our lives that we as your people might bring you glory every moment of our lives because we abide in our Savior Christ in whose name we pray, amen.